Legends of the First Empire, Age of Myth, by Michael J. Sullivan. Chapter 15, The Lost One. When I was born, the name Moya had no meaning or significance in the runic, dirg, or fray languages. It does now, and in all three it means the same thing, brave and beautiful. The Book of Bryn. The people of Dal Ren had gone without drawing water for as long as they could. Once the fray had settled next to the well, no one was willing to go near it except Wraith, and Persephone refused to make him the village water boy. The women decided to go together, hoping there was safety in numbers, and a herd of women would be less likely to spark a problem than a troop of men. Tense husbands and sons watched from doorways as their wives and mothers gathered all the containers they could carry. Persephone led the expedition since it had been her idea. All told, they had more than 20 women, each laden with poles and gourds. Tressa was notably absent. No one from the lodge had ventured out, and Persephone wondered what they were drinking in there. The former chieftain's wife lined everyone up single file along the outer wall in front of Burgeon the Brewer's row of aging clay jugs. She offered words of encouragement, telling them to be calm and quiet. They were to fill the containers and then head back the way they came. Delwyn, Tope, Cobb, Gelston, and Gifford stood alongside Burgeon, watching. Each looked about as relaxed as a turtle without a shell. You be careful, Delwyn told Sarah. And if there's trouble, you drop that pole and you run back to me as fast as you can. You understand? Persephone wondered what Delwyn, or any of the men, thought could be done if trouble arose. Wraith was the only one capable of standing up to the fray, and even he didn't stand a chance against so many. Not that there were nine at the well. Each day, a few of them left the doll and went into the forest. No one knew where they went or why, but she took advantage of the daily excursions when planning the well raid, timing it for when the fewest fray would be present. Bryn had been one of the first to volunteer to haul water, but her parents had refused. If it wasn't for the good of the doll, do you think I would be going? Sarah asked her. This is dangerous. We have no idea what they might do. Sarah was trembling, and Delwyn gave his wife a long, tight hug. Persephone, Moya, and Sarah led the column across the byway on the far side of the lodge. They passed the newly turned black soil of the Killian's garden, where green beans were already sprouting. Then they moved past a pile of green wood Viv and Bruce Baker's boys had stacked. As they neared the lodge and the well, Persephone saw Wraith and Malcolm not far from Sarah's roundhouse, watching the procession. The fray watched as well. There were only three in their camp near the well, and Persephone was disappointed that neither Nifron nor Grigor was among them. She had talked to those two before, and wasn't sure if any of the others knew Runic. Persephone spoke Frey, but she wasn't confident in her ability. Knowing their language was a requirement of all chieftains, because the fray held meetings to review treaties and discuss grievances. Reglan had learned it from his father, and she learned the vernacular when Reglan had taught their son. Conagher didn't realize it yet, but he was going to have to learn the language from her. Thankfully, the goblin wasn't there. The assortment of Galantians who ventured into the Crescent Forest each day was different, but each party always included him. Aside from their daily outings, the fray stayed mostly in their camp, stitching clothes, sharpening blades, polishing armor, and speaking quietly among themselves. That morning, the tall one who carried the spear, a gigantic pole with a fearsome blade, sat rubbing it with a cloth. 
Next to him was the quiet one, who braided his hair and had a fascination with tying knots in lengths of rope or in the frayed threads of his clothes. The last one was called Tekchen. Persephone had heard his name from several of the others, usually when they told him to be quiet. Tekchen was a scary-looking fray, with short-cut hair, intense eyes, and a scar cut along the side of his face, and a sneer that seemed just as permanent. The scar was easy to see, as none of the fray had beards. Persephone had previously thought fray were like women in that respect, but since their arrival, she'd seen them scraping their faces with blades. As the line of women approached the well, Tekchen stood up and moved to the edge of the path. Sarah faltered at his approach, and Persephone grabbed her hand, squeezing tightly to keep her walking. The fray folded his arms and glared as they neared. So merciless was his gaze that the whole line slowed. Sarah tugged backward, and even Persephone had trouble keeping her feet moving forward. From behind her, Moya shouted, What are you looking at? Moya? Persephone thought her heart might have stopped at that moment. Her feet certainly would have if they weren't in a procession, and it was hard to stop 20 people moving as one. I'm looking at you, the fray growled back in runic and moved toward her. The line did halt then, jostling to a standstill. This time it was Sarah who squeezed Persephone's hand, and she did so with enough force that it hurt. Persephone guessed the only reason the women hadn't scattered was that they were too scared to move. Then, Moya did the unthinkable. She stepped out of line and closed the distance between herself and the sneering Galantian. She walked so forcefully that the empty gourds dangling from the pole over her shoulders bounced together, making hollow clunks. Well, this ain't a show, Moya said with the same saucy disdain she used when Heath Coswell asked her to dance last wintertide. We need water, so why don't you help us out and put your eyes back in your head? No one breathed for a moment as the two faced off. Then... All three fray began laughing. Tekchen nodded and held out his hand. Moya looked confused. She obviously had meant for the fray to help by getting out of their way, but he'd taken her words of assistance literally. When she didn't react, he reached out and lifted the pole off her shoulders. Moya stood still, as if a bee were buzzing around her. Tekchen took her gourds to the well, where he began pulling water. The women just stared. Get over here and give me a hand! Tekchen demanded of the others in the fray language. The one with the spear set his weapon down and began working the rope, tying it around a gourd and lowering it. The fray with the braided hair approached Persephone and took both her and Sarah's set of jugs. He brought them over to the well, and Tekchen filled each. What's your name? Tekchen asked Moya. Who wants to know? Don't push it for all that sacred. Please don't push it. Persephone thought. She was ready to kill Moya yet wanted to kiss her at the same time. I'm Tekchen, he said, exchanging an empty gourd for a full one, the handsomest and most skilled of the Galantians. This brought an immediate and loud moan from the other fray. That scar suggests otherwise, Moya replied, on both counts. More laughter, louder this time. Pretty and smart, Tekchen said to the others in fray. Persephone was thankful Moya couldn't understand their language. A comment like that would have been tantamount to putting torch to tinder. This? Tetchin returned to Runic and touched his cheek. Nah, this is a beauty mark given to me by a special friend. He's dead now, of course, but he was a gifted opponent and aiming for my throat. I can assure you it proves my skill. So what's your name? Or shall I call you Doe Eyes? Doe Eyes? Seriously? 
Moya rolled her same sad eyes in disbelief. I would have expected something less sappy from a god. My name is Moya. Call me anything else and you'll receive a second beauty mark. Tekton struggled but failed to resist smiling. Behind him, the rest of the fray laughed once more. God, eh? Tekton said. Don't get too excited. Apparently, it's only a rumor. I like you, Moya. Most people do, she replied. Seeing that her water containers were filled, Moya lifted the pole, laid it across her shoulders, and walked away. The raid on the well had been a huge success, and Persephone received praise for coming up with the idea, despite Moya being the true hero of the hour. With stores of fresh water once more at hand, meals were made, animals watered, and songs sung. Not everyone was pleased. Conaga and Tressa were reportedly livid. Later that afternoon, the new chieftain summoned Persephone to the lodge, a demand she chose to ignore. When Maeve was sent to ask why she had failed to appear, Moya answered for Persephone. Tell Conagher she's taking a bath. This unleashed uncontrolled laughter in Rowan's roundhouse, drawing a huff of indignation from Maeve before she left. No one knew whether Maeve actually delivered the message because a few minutes later, the doll's horn blew again. Three long wails. The singing and laughter stopped. Ray! Cobb shouted once again. The gate stood open, as it did most days from dawn till dusk, and Cobb looked to Persephone for direction. She turned to Nifron, who along with the rest of the Galanteans had returned from their hike in the forest. No one saw Conagher. The Galanteans said nothing. They merely gathered their weapons, slung shields, and marched out of the gate. Not all of them went. The goblin stayed behind. Persephone climbed the ladder to stand on top of the wall. She leaned out on the logs and looked down as the two groups converged just below. This new troop was remarkably similar to the Galanteans. They wore brilliant golden breastplates, studded war skirts, plumed helms, and long blue capes. Despite the uniformity, Nifron stood out. He was taller than the others, had no helm, and his golden hair blew in the breeze. But it was more than that. The swagger of his walk, the way he folded his arms and stood waiting for the others to approach, made him greater than the rest. A god among gods. What's going to happen? Cobb asked her. Are they going to fight? I don't know. Similar in numbers. What if they do? Do we help? I don't know. What if they lose? I don't know, Cobb. Will you please be quiet? The ladder creaked, and a moment later, Wraith and Malcolm climbed up. They all leaned on the sharpened tip of the log rampart, peering down, waiting for the clash. A terrible thought crossed Persephone's mind. What if Nifron has been waiting for reinforcements before starting a slaughter? The two groups exchanged hand gestures. Nothing threatening. Greetings, perhaps. And then they came together and began talking in fray. Persephone did her best to understand the exchange. What are you doing here? The leader of the other group asked. I was going to ask you the same thing, Nifron replied. We're looking for the rune that murdered Chigon. Not here. You sure? The other fray asked. We've been here for days. I think we would have noticed. The other leader nodded thoughtfully, and there was a long pause. Why'd you do it? It was Nifron's turn to nod thoughtfully. You're not looking for Shigon's murderer, are you? We are, but Petrigar also asked if we could find you. And what will you tell him? I don't know, the fray sighed. 
Fleeing just made matters worse. Fleeing? Nephron laughed. Sakar, tell me honestly, have you ever known me to flee? Although there had been a formation of sorts on their approach, both groups had broken their lines. They didn't exactly mingle, but they weren't prepping for combat either. Sakar stood in the forefront with Nephron. Smaller, thinner, with shorter hair and a weaker posture, Sikar appeared no match for the leader of the Galantians. So what would you call it? Petrigar said you refused orders, broke his jaw, and ran off. First of all, Tetchkin paused to belch, Petrigar, the little Asica that he is, was unconscious all the time, so he doesn't know Tet. Sikar kept his attention on Nifron. Are you saying you didn't defy orders? Oh, we disobeyed, Nifron said, and glanced back at the Galanteans with a wry smile. That part is true, and we have no intention of returning to the wrist. You might want to reconsider, Sikar said. Petrigar has sent word to Estromnodon. What a breedeth, Nifron said. That's the kind of overreaction I expect from someone like him, and is exactly why Lothian shouldn't have turned over the reins of the wrist to anyone but an Instaria. Nifron, you refused a direct order from the Fane, and you broke the commander's jaw. What did you expect? Nifron shrugged. Sikar stared at him in disbelief, then looked back at his troops and shook his head, clapping his hands to his sides. Nifron, the Fane could order your execution. Why did you do it? I thought you'd met Petrigar, Nifron said and smiled. Sikar sighed. This isn't funny. When I go back, I will have to report finding you. If you feel you have to, go ahead. And then what? I don't want to be the one getting the order to bring you in. Or worse. Nephron smiled. The Galantian appeared to find his entertaining, but he seemed to be the only one. Do you think you could? Sikar stared at him, his face hard. I wouldn't have a choice, Nephron. Your father is dead. Lothian won. He's the new Fane and can't be challenged again for another 3,000 years, so you're going to have to live with that fact. Even if he dies before the Uli Vermar, his son will take over, and then what will you do? Challenge him? Repeat your father's mistake? Swords can't defeat the art. You were there. You saw what happened in that arena. Nifron no longer looked so jovial and began walking around Sakaar. A rune killed Shigon, Nifron said. It proves runes can fight. According to Merrill, Shigon was unconscious when he was killed. I hadn't heard that, but it doesn't change the fact that the runes know what is possible now. Frey can't kill Frey, but runes can. If provoked, they will fight back. Sikar shook his head. I hope you know what you're doing. Let's just say I don't intend to make the same mistakes as my father. Nifron stopped and clapped Sikar on the shoulders, leaving his hands there and looking into his eyes. What do you say? Why don't you join us? You can't be serious. What you're suggesting is unthinkable. It's not our place to question the Fane. Our Lord Pharaoh appointed him. Nifron shoved him backwards. Don't give me that crap. Pharaoh didn't pick Lothian. He was the son of Phanelius. That's how he got the fourth throne. Before the art, challenges were fair. But now it doesn't matter who the Aquila picks. From here on, we're doomed to be ruled by the Miralith. And Lothian just happened to be next in line. He's a privileged, self-centered elitist who thinks anyone from another tribe is a lesser race. We're nothing but slaves to him. My father was the only one willing to say so and back it up with a sword. And now he's dead, Sikar said, stepping forward to regain the ground he'd lost. 
I think I'd rather die than be a slave, Nifron shot back. Sikar looked up at the wall lined with spectators. He sighed. You might be put to that test sooner than you think. What do you mean? I mean, it might not be me who is sent to retrieve you. The Rist is expecting a visitor from Estromnodon. A visitor? Her name is Arion. The Galantians looked at one another. No one appeared to recognize the name. Rumor has it she's the tutor to the prince, Sikar said. Merilith, Nifron said gravely. Tutor to the prince, Tetchkin added. That can't be good. Sikar nodded. Petrogar was falling all over himself making preparations of welcome. Running honor guard drills, hanging banners, scrubbing walls. Nifron, her name is Senzlor. Swift of mind? It was given to her by Fenelius. Fenelius! Do you think she's coming after us? Why else will a palace-level Miralith pay a visit to the wrist? Sikar's face filled with sympathy. The only way you could be in more trouble is if Grindel or the Fane himself was on his way. Sikar sighed. Listen, I wasn't in Estromnodon for the challenge. I didn't see it, but I heard what happened. What Lothian did to your father. You should run. Just disappear. Nifron shook his head. It wouldn't help. No one can hide from a Miralith. Sikar nodded and extended his hand. Any idea where we can find Shigan's killer so this trip won't be a total loss? Perhaps we'll appease Petrogar if we come back with something. Nifron turned and looked up at Wraith. I'm pretty sure he's southeast. What, in Minahan? That's a possibility. Great. I love the stink of sheep. Okay. Sikar sighed. Good luck to you. Nifron gripped Sikar's forearm and the two clapped shoulders. I hope we never see any of you again, Sikar said. Then turning to Tetchkin, he added, especially you. Sikar, you sound like a spurned lover, Tetchkin laughed. Sikar laughed with him, and as he turned around and walked away, he called back. You forget how many of us owe you gambling debts, Tetchkin. Farewell. Tetchkin stopped laughing as he watched them leave. Suri had slept through the morning events, missing the well raid and the confrontation at the gate. Certain things could be done only by moonlight, and recently, Suri had discovered many tasks to do. It wasn't until late afternoon that she woke, unable to sleep through the screaming. By the time she crawled out of Rowan's house, the noise had stopped. The man lying on the grass in front of the lodge was a twisted heap of blood-soaked rags, no longer breathing. Parts of him were missing. Most of him was missing. Surrey had seen similar sights dozens of times in the forest. Deer, wolves, foxes, and opossums left mauled and partially eaten by hunters who had their fill or whose meal had been interrupted. The bulk of the dog gathered round to see the sight. Even the fray looked on with interest. Conniger was out of the lodge, standing on the raised porch and declaring, This was the work of the bear that killed Reglan, Mon, and Oswald. Cryer has been cutting wood at the edge of the forest. Conniger pointed up the tree-covered mountain. He was bucking a log. The man he was with went to get the sled. They weren't gone more than a few minutes. When they got back, Cryer was gone. They followed the blood trail and found him where he'd been dragged to. Cryer's wife wailed in the crowd held on her feet by others. Suri reached into her pouch, pulled out the blackened leg bone of that chicken, and rubbed it thoughtfully with her thumb. 
What do you think? She asked Mina, who sat dutifully beside her and refused to engage in idle speculation. You're such a wise wolf. The marking on the bone had said a monster was coming, and it had given Suri its name. Rarely did a chicken render that level of detail, but Suri was certain she'd gotten it right. There wasn't any doubt about Grin the Brown, but the bone had revealed that she was no mere bear. It had to be a demon. It wasn't uncommon for evil spirits to possess people and animals. Tuda had fought a row after they stumbled upon his bed of bones. She was certain the row had once been an unfortunate woman lost in the woods. Starving, the woman had been taken over by a demon, which was how most row came to be. Grin was no row. Suri had narrowed the choices of demons down to three, a Yakis, a Morvin, or a Bendigo. She was leaning toward a Morvin since they were the result of an animal eating human flesh. The Browns seemed to have a fondness for the taste of people. Still, Suri had to be sure. As a mystic, it was her responsibility to hunt and kill this demon for the good of the region, and an incorrect identification could prove disastrous. Conagher returned inside the lodge. Suri didn't like the log building. Entering it felt like climbing inside the dead, rotting body of old friends. But she had to find out more about what kind of demon she was dealing with. And this was as good a time as any. The mystic climbed the stone steps and ducked into the wooden cave. The fire was still burning in the big room's pit. She searched for Conagher, but guessed he'd already headed up the stairs. She could hear creaks and shuffles overhead. Suri crept along the edge of the fire pit, inching toward the steps. Twelve pillars, four rows of three, held up the ceiling. They lined their halls with the dead bodies of noble beings. The place stank of smoke and grease. On the walls hung square shields painted different colors and long spears with ribbons and feathers tied to the necks. The skins of animals lay on the floor. Deer, bobcats, and two bears. One black, the other brown. Suri stepped around them, grimacing. As she looked back at the entrance, the bright light of day was being strangled by the doorway. The place was a lair of predators, murderers, and thieves. Little wonder the demon assumed a bear's shape. A boy dropped the log in the fire and peeked at her and Mina. He offered a smile. Siri smiled back. I understand. I told you I understood. Now leave me alone. Conagher's voice boomed overhead, a sort of inferior thunder. The mystic headed toward the stairs with Mina padding along behind. Overhead, a door slammed. Where do you think you're going? Maeve appeared at the top of the steps, glaring down. Her face was flushed, and there was anger or perhaps fear in her eyes. Suri often had difficulty distinguishing between the two, at least with people. I need to speak to Chieftain Conagher. About what? Maeve remained on the steps with her hands on the rails, blocking the way up. I've done a reading from Bones, several now. The thing that murdered that man out there, Grin the Brown, isn't a bear at all. Of course not, Maeve's voice jumped in pitch and volume. Suri took a step backward at the old woman's outburst. Mina took two. So you know. Good. That's why I need to speak with Conagher. It's a powerful demon. He said so the day he brought back Reglan's body. He's fought it. If I can ask him some questions to learn the demon's true nature, then I'll be prepared. The demon is coming at the light of the full moon. But I don't know exactly what kind of demon we're talking about. If I could just... Get out, Maeve snapped and pointed to the door. The 
old woman was furious. Conacher is too busy to see you. We have Frey camped just outside the hall and men being slaughtered on the eaves of the forest. He just... He doesn't have time for mystic nonsense. It's not nonsense. Out, she cried, coming down the stairs. Suri and Mina retreated. You don't understand. Out, I say. Suri stood her ground at the bottom of the stairs. But Conagher, Conagher doesn't know nothing about anything. Nothing about the bear, especially. Come the full moon, that bear will kill everyone, even the fray, I think. Shayla would never do such a thing. She's a good girl. Shayla? Suri asked, puzzled. You call Grin Shayla? If you don't leave, I'll call Hegner. He's Conagher's shield now. He'll... Shayla means lost one. Maeve's face hardened. I want you gone. Not just out of this lodge, but off the doll. I'll have Conagher banish you. She looked around, but only found Habet and scowled. Hegner! Why would you call Grin the Brown Lost One? Maeve came down from the stairs and rushed to the wall. She pulled one of the spears from the hooks and whirled it at Suri. I wouldn't do that, the mystic said. Mina doesn't like it when people point sticks at her. To emphasize this, the wolf began to growl, fur rising. Maeve stopped. Hegner! Hegner! Come on, Mina. The two left the lodge. Behind them, the door slammed, hard. The mystic glanced down at the wolf. Well, what do you make of that? The wolf looked back at the closed door, but again, kept her own counsel. You are so smart, Mina. You must be the smartest of all wolves. <laughs>